invertebrate, invertebrae. Invertebrate? Invertebrate. Okay. Invertebrate? Invertebrate. Invertebrate. Crushed it. Welcome to Absolute Genius, a new podcast series from Thermo Fisher Scientific. I'm Jordan Ruggieri. And I'm Cassie McCreary. And for today's episode, we scratch our itch for talking all things digital PCR with Patrick Hannington. Patrick is a professor at the University of Alberta, where he earned his Bachelor's of Science and PhD studying invertebrate animals, parasites, and immunology. His work today focuses on schistosome parasites and how they transmit swimmer's itch in lake ecosystems. So quickly, if you need to get in the mood for this conversation, pause the podcast and go watch Alien. Maybe Aliens next, then The Last of Us. Go watch it. <laughs> go watch it, then come back to us, please. <laughs> Don't leave us. Patrick, I'm just going to dive right in. Um, you know, t- talking about um, you know so- some of your background here when it comes to detecting parasites in both public and, and recreational waters. What does that look like? What 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 exactly do you do in terms of uh, looking for parasites and things in, in water samples? We uh, work on a group of parasites that are related to human schistosomes, which are parasites that can cause disease in uh, tropical regions of the world. The ones that we work on, though, in North America cause swimmer's itch. It looks like a bunch of mosquito bites on you. Um, can last for like two weeks and is very unpleasant, especially if it happens to young kids. We work on this group of parasites and they are transmitted by freshwater snails. You have to have a snail to continue the life cycle of the parasite. And for the ones that cause swimmer's itch, usually it's uh, waterfowl that are the other host in the parasite life cycle. So we are actually interested in the, the larval stage of the parasite that comes out of the snail. And that's what causes swimmer's itch. It is looking for a bird that's in the ecosystem and it'll try to penetrate the skin of a bird. And if a swimmer is in the water, yeah, they're just uh, sort of like a casualty of the process. Historically, the way that people would look for those parasites are to look at the snails. So they would collect a whole bunch of snails and look to see you know, what snails are releasing, what parasites. It works, but it's a complicated process. And there's a lot of other parasites that go through those snails. So it's really difficult. You know, when you're looking at the snails, is there, a, you know, do you look at the actual snail and kind of project how much potential parasite there might be? Or are you just looking to detect the parasite? How, what does that look like? It's actually a pretty cool process. So the, the snail eventually is just hijacked by these parasites. And it becomes a little factory that produces the, the parasite. And um, like it can be a pretty insane process. Like up to 25% of the snail's biomass can be taken up by the parasite. Holy cow. After about a month. Yeah. And then... Um, build these like larval stages. They um, they look like uh, microscopic tadpoles, and they they'll just come out of the snail. Like they come like through the tissues, just like right out of the snail, and there'll be like thousands of them. Yeah, that's that's really <laughs> gnarly. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I when I teach parasitology to students is I usually use an analogy of the movie Alien, where like that alien's like bursting out of Berkeley's chest. And I've realized that like students nowadays, uh, lots of them have not watched Alien. Like that movie is not on the the like must watch list of students now. And so that that analogy doesn't go anywhere. Like I, they're always like, "What is he talking about?" 
but it's like a perfect analogy for what's happening to these snails because it's like the parasites are just like tearing through them. I always feel like I need to put a, like a required set of movies for the students to watch before coming to class. <laughs> so that I, all of my, all of my stories make sense to them. Do you, do you make them watch, uh, watch Contagion as well? Is that on the list? <laughs> I should put that on there. When I was in, uh, in virology in in college, Contagion was the movie that, uh, that we were required to watch. So it was, uh, that, that I remember pretty vividly. <laughs> yeah, you know, the one that I think it came it came before Contagion uh, Outbreak, and it had uh, like Cuba Gooding Jr. and Dustin Hoffman in it. Um, and that one was uh, like an awesome movie to use as a sort of a, a reference point for how technically specific a movie could get about scientific procedures because there's this part where they find out that uh, it's like a monkey that's brought this virus into the United States, and Cuba Gooding Jr., He's playing a scientist in the show and he's like, we've got to get this back to the lab and do it, Eliza. And it's like such a specific scientific test that he's talking about. But it's like, that's the only movie I can think of where they actually <laughs> ever said, I'm going to go back and do an Eliza. <laughs> so I'm relatively ignorant when it comes to like parasites and anything really about it. But like, I mean, you say that these things sort of like burst out of the snails and what, but like, what's the relate? Like, do, are they harmful to this? I mean, are the snails like exploding or are they like, I mean, is it harmful? Is it not really anything? There is certainly some negative effects on the snail, but when we bring a snail that's infected into our lab and we have like a whole room that's just for maintaining snails, we can keep them alive for like, for months. Like they'll live like that and produce parasites like almost every morning. So the parasites coming out of the snail when the sun comes up, and they're positively phototactic, so they'll they'll rise up to the surface of the water, and they'll just sit there. And if they encounter uh, a bird, or or a swimmer for that matter, they'll penetrate through your skin. And it only takes a couple, like within a within a minute, <laughs> um, they'll be in your skin. So it doesn't take a long time for them to get in. And then there's a lot of like, you know, if you're working with a human parasite, then the parasite will enter the bloodstream and move around and develop into an adult worm and all this kind of stuff. But for the ones that cause swimmer's itch, they just get killed in your skin. And then there's just a local sort of inflammatory response. Our goal was really to try to find a better way to evaluate the risk of swimmer's itch at a recreational water site. That's sort of what got us into this track of applying, I guess, like a recreational water quality monitoring lens that is often used for monitoring for things like enteric bacteria um, using PCR, qPCR, to swimmer's itch. And we were able to, to piggyback off of an existing publication that developed a test that would uh, detect like all of the species of swimmer's itch causing parasite from a water sample. And then what we did is we further validated that test to allow us to quantify those parasites. And, um, and standardized sample collection. So when we go out and sample now, what we do is we use a, a 20 micron zooplankton collecting net. So it's like a, like a, you know, maybe like three foot long mesh net with a cup at the bottom. And, um, and so you, we pour a set volume of water through that. And then it all collects into this bottom cup that we can then pass through a, a smaller filter that concentrates everything that was in that water sample onto a little filter disk that we can extract DNA from. Then we just run, we would run qPCR to analyze that sample and quantify the number of parasites. What we've tried to do is evolve from the test that just allows us to quantify 
all the swimmers are causing parasites to get down to the level of species identification using PCR. When you're using PCR for, for things like this, you know, do you have to have multiple different targets that you're, that you're looking at to identify these parasites, or, or is it one that's kind of a species-conserved uh, region that you're looking at? Yeah, it's, it is a single gene target that we look for, but we're often looking at slightly different regions of that gene for each of the different species of the parasite. Um, so far, that's worked out okay. And luckily, these parasites are relatively distinct within an aquatic ecosystem compared to like all the other things that are in a water sample. And that's, you know, one of the biggest challenges for us doing this sort of level of environmental microbiology or parasitology is we have to be really careful that we're not cross-reacting with all of the other possible organisms that are leaving behind DNA or present in that water sample. So there's a lot of test validation that has to be done and we need to have you know, known quantities. So we have to have pure specimens of each of the different species that we're, we're trying to detect and all the ones that might cross-react. And that's taken a lot of time for us to develop and sort of accumulate all that uh, sample material that allows us to go in and develop these tests now. But we have now, we have like almost 100 different species of flatworm parasite, uh, like DNA samples. That's really helpful because we can then use those to confirm that we're not going to get false positives or false negatives or things like that on our tests. Now, ultimately, what are your what are your goals when you're when you're looking at this? Is it just to kind of understand and research more of the parasite, or or you know what what exactly is kind of that that ultimate goal for for your research? Yeah. So, well, one of them one of them is just to understand more about these specific um, swimmers causing parasites, these um, avian schistosomes, um, and the reason for that is. A, because I think they're interesting parasites, but they also, working on those parasites allows us to make a lot of inferences about the human parasites, which we, we also work on in my lab. From an ecosystem perspective, we can test a lot of hypotheses about environmental factors and different drivers of the abundance of those parasites in an aquatic ecosystem. But we can test that using the storage causing parasites, which are much lower consequence um, and a lot easier to design experiments on than the human causing, the human disease causing parasites, which, you know, you have to go to a tropical area to research and the, they cause human infection. So, um, so it's a, a nice system to test hypotheses about how these parasites behave, uh, in an aquatic ecosystem. And then I think more broadly at a sort of a bigger picture level, it's really emerging that we're able to use these parasites more broadly, not just the schistosomes, but all the flatworm parasites that are in a sample as an indication of aquatic ecosystem biodiversity. So we can, like I was saying, we can predict the birds that are present and we can predict the mammals that are present. And often some of those parasites are going through aquatic invertebrates. And so as we piece together all of the species that we have in our aquatic environments, then we can use something like eDNA metabarcoding to create a parasite profile for that aquatic ecosystem and then predict what the aquatic ecosystem biodiversity is and it's it's a way of unifying around a single sort of sampling strategy but you get this huge comp comprehensive profile something like like say you had like some sort of invasive species come in or something like that would that like greatly shift the, the meta barcoding and everything like it I've, i'm assuming these things would change over time depending on how the ecosystem itself will change yeah yeah and that's actually like it's we we just got a grant from one of our provincial funding organizations to look at exactly that question about how invasive species, aquatic invasive species, 
influence um, the sort of aquatic ecosystem broadly. And so it relies on EDNA metabarcoding. And we compare it actually to digital PCR assessments of uh, the presence or absence of those aquatic um, invasive species. And, and so we kind of are comparing the very high sensitivity, high specificity of digital PCR assessment to what is probably slightly lower sensitivity and specificity of metabarcoding just because you know, some organisms are going to be very abundant in an aquatic ecosystem eDNA sample, and you might lose that signal from what is a rare invasive species. For like an early detection type of a, an approach, it could be a really powerful tool, especially I think the digital PCR if you have the right information and you can continue to survey for those organisms using digital PCR. Uh, I think it's a really exciting tool. I was just going to say it is the perfect segue. Uh, Patrick, I know you you know we are big digital PCR fans here at, at Absolute Genius. Can can you kind of elaborate a little more how you utilize digital PCR in your in your workflow? Like I mentioned earlier, you know, we have a lot of experience using qPCR, uh, quantitative polymerase chain reaction, and it was a, just a few years ago now that we we realized, you know, that some of the limitations of using qPCR in an environmental context, a lot of them have been addressed by digital PCR. Um, the big one that we often struggle with is um, PCR inhibitors uh, in a sample because we're often working with either water samples. And I mean, you guys probably haven't been to Alberta before, but the lakes here are pretty gunky. I don't want to like, I don't want to bash them too badly. Well, even even uh, even I, for clear clear water, I can imagine you get you get mud, you get sediment, you get plants, you get you know lots of stuff in there. I'm from New Jersey. Our beaches are the definition of gunky. Like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, we have cyanobacterial blooms, like blue green algae blooms, in every one of our central Alberta lakes. We're always wrestling with PCR inhibitors, cyanobacteria. And, you know, we can do cleanup procedures of the DNA. When we do the DNA extraction, we can try to clean that sample up a little bit. Um, and often those work pretty well to get rid of inhibitors, but it doesn't take much to impact the qPCR reaction. And digital PCR, one of the big advantages from our perspective anyways, is that it does a much better job of, of minimizing the impact of inhibitors um, on your reaction. That is the number one big advantage for us in the environmental space, I think. Um, and then the other is that we've actually found that it's a little bit easier to multiplex um, than the qPCR reactions are. So that's become really advantageous for this invasive species work that we're doing. Um, this idea that we can create these customized digital PCR panels for particular invasive species groups and just run a single digital PCR plate to assess for all four of them um, is really it's really exciting. What benefits does digital PCR allow in that in that multiplexing uh, uh, area? Related to that question, one of the really big advantages that we find with the absolute Q system is that we can use a qPCR assay on the absolute Q system. So we can do a lot of the sort of traditional validation steps for you know the assay performance and all that kind of stuff, and then we just move it onto the absolute Q system, and it it works fine. In terms of multiplexing, we always struggle a with the presence or absence of inhibitors but then b like part of the part of our challenge sometimes is that we're uh we'll be working with assays that um that can be you know depending on the floor for depending on on what we're amplifying can cause challenges when we multiplex and so we've 
we've often defaulted to just always running a single floor for assay um, with the QPCR. It's not that we can't multiplex on the QPCR platforms, but there's a lot more that we have to do in terms of compensation and figuring out exactly um, you know, how the two different assays perform with each other. The thing that we found with the absolute Q is that it's essentially set up so that the three, three of the floor fours for sure are like very distinct. And then the fourth one is usually like also pretty good. And so we find that it's a lot easier to just run those four and, and we can, you know, we can confirm that there's no bleed over a lot easier with that software. So it's just a very simple multiplexing platform and because of the simplicity of the way that the system works generally, it's just really easy for us to, to just load it up and, and, and run the samples with four different floor fours in there and then get the data we need from all four. With the QPCR, we often found that we had to, we had to work on optimizing enzyme amount versus DNA that we loaded into the reaction versus the presence of like all the different components of the reaction and the absolute Q system just works a lot easier to do that multiplexing. Like we've, we've played around with how much DNA do we load versus water versus enzyme and all that stuff. And we basically found that like the amount that it says to use is just the right amount to use. So it's a lot, it's a lot easier that way. Um, and that, that's like, that's helpful just because often within our lab where, you know, it's, it's MSc students or PhD students, or sometimes even undergrad students that are working on this stuff. And, um, it's helpful just to know that the, you can multiplex with these four things and often you're going to be okay. Um, and that it's really easy for them to go in and know whether or not there's a problem rather than having to have like all that technical background of understanding how it works, the QPCR system. Part of it is just that it's a lot easier. Taking a quick break from our conversation to tell you about Applied Biosystems Quant Studio Absolute Q DPCR system. This instrument enables quantification of your targets without the need for standard curves in only 90 minutes. Digital PCR can be as simple as preparing your samples, loading onto the plate, and running the instrument. Unlike other digital PCR systems, the Absolute Q DPCR instrument does not use emulsion or other droplet-based methods to compartmentalize reactions. In fact, the microfluidic array plate technology enables consistent delivery of more than 20,000 microchangers. It's a great solution for anyone looking to quantify gene. And Thermo Fisher Scientific has a suite of DPCR assays for applications like AAV viral titer quantification, liquid biopsy analysis, and wastewater surveillance. You can learn more at www.thermofisher.com slash absoluteq or visit the Absolute Genius webpage. Again, that's www.thermofisher.com slash absoluteq or visit the Absolute Genius webpage. The Applied Biosystems Quant Studio Absolute QD PCR system is for research use only, not for use in diagnostic procedures. Let's get back to our conversation. It's clear that like you're very passionate about this stuff. You care a lot about this stuff. But is this, I mean, has it always been like what you wanted to do? Is this the route that you thought your career would take? Like, has it always been parasites and water quality and like the environment and swimmer's edge? That's a funny question. Like when I... If you were to ask me that at the end of my undergraduate degree, um, I had no idea what I was going to do. And it was really, it was really just, um, I, I took a fourth year parasitology course. And I, I really enjoyed it. The instructor for that course uh, ended up being my PhD advisor. And I actually, I started in that lab wanting to do parasitology, but 
the guy I was working for was like, no, I think you're going to work on immunology instead. So, um, and so I did a, a PhD on fish immunology, but then, yeah, then I, I was faced with a, a decision of like what I wanted to do after my, my PhD. And I really wanted to get back into the parasite stuff. That was kind of what initially attracted me to going into research in the first place. And then I didn't mind doing the immunology part, but I really wanted to get back into parasitology. And so I actually merged the two things together. So I, I worked on snail immunology to the human schistosome. Um, and so I moved to New Mexico and I was there for about three years and worked on snail immunology to human schistosome infections. And we still, I still actually do work on that now as a dimension to the research that I do in the lab. Yeah. Then I just started applying for jobs and, um, I actually thought that the University of Alberta, which is where I had done my undergraduate degree and my PhD, I thought for sure like that was going to be a no-go because I had been there for so long. And I was like, there's no way they're going to offer me a job to come back there. I thought, you know, this idea of getting diverse experiences and stuff like that would prevail. But the School of Public Health offered me a position. And so I came and started up a lab. And then, then the rest of it really just came as I thought about what is it that I actually know how to do. Something, and this isn't necessarily career related, but it's something that's been like, it's weighing on me <laughs> based on our conversation. With all of your years of like this research that you've done with like having to collect water and things like that, what is the most interesting or maybe the strangest location that you've had to collect water from? I think like when I go collecting myself, my most interesting collecting experience was actually really close to Edmonton. They were actually having a swimmer's itch issue, which is rare like that we would go out to that here in Alberta. It's actually like a lot of our storage research work is in Michigan. And in Alberta, it's like, it doesn't come up that often. And so this lake um, that had a private beach out of there, they called and they asked if I would come out and just sample to confirm whether or not they had storage or not. And normally my default answer is like, just yes, you do have storage research. So you don't need me to go out and tell you that. But I was like, well, it'd be good to like go and check in and stuff. So I went and I, I sampled the beach and normally the snails are living in like the vegetation off to the sides of the beach. So I was just like, okay, I'll just go check out those things. And there was all these uh, like red winged blackbirds that were nesting in the vegetation. So I, I realized I was kind of in amidst like a whole bunch of nests and they would just like dive bomb at me. And so I realized I wasn't welcome there really quickly. So I was like, well, I'll just leave. And there's this other pond that was behind the main lake and the people who had asked me to come, they said, oh, well, we know a lot of the birds are over there. So I thought maybe there'd be a lot more infected snails over there. So I, I went in and like, like I said earlier, our lakes here are not the nicest lakes. So the shoreline is often pretty muddy and like, it's like a lot of it is like decayed vegetation and stuff. So it's, it can get pretty stinky when you like first go in and so we have to wear waders and all this stuff to go collecting so i went in and like i took two steps and then like just sank like three feet into the mud and i was like oh man this isn't gonna be good and so i was trying to like wiggle like myself to free myself from the mud and i was like well like i didn't want to call for help um <laughs> but i was like i'm probably not gonna get out of this <laughs> without getting dirty and the more I wiggled, the, I realized, like, I, I probably should have, like, applied some of my movie knowledge that I was mentioning earlier to my situation. Because I was like, I, like, that's not how you should get a quicksand. And that's what I was doing. 
And I was like, this is not getting any better because I just kept on going further down. And I was like, I'm going to have to bail out of the waders and just kind of like, like mud skipper along the shore to get out. So <laughs> I just like had to, I had to unclip the waders and I just like extracted myself out and just pulled myself along with the vegetation and just like pulled myself along the mud to the shore and just left them there. So the waders are still, they're still in the water there. Like they're just buried there. I managed to get to the car and like got in and I drove just like out of the area and then just like pulled off to the side of the highway. And then like my phone was luckily okay. And I just emailed them back and just said like, oh, sorry, I had to go really quick, but I'll do it. I'll analyze your samples and it'll be fine. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> we just, we just took a journey there. So has, has your love of some of this stuff like spilled over into like your personal life or like hobbies that you do like so with like the swimmer's itch thing are you a swimmer or you know like i mean i do i love going to lakes um and and doing stuff there but it's it's like it's funny because my daughter who's six years old she knows that snails are my favorite animal and so she loves to go to the lakes and like collect snails and like grab and look at them and stuff like that so she's always like i found a snail i found a snail and it's like a little shell and stuff like that so so yeah, it's definitely spilled over into like into what we do and um and yeah, it's all I always just enjoy if I go, I, I don't swim, but I'll like wander along the shoreline and just like pick stuff up and look at what's there and investigate things. So yeah, it's fun. It's like it's a good it's a good way to keep your curiosity high. We were talking about contagion and things like that earlier on and like so do you enjoy picking out like fallacies in like films that have to do with science or like anything like that? I sometimes I'm, uh, it's like a little bit disappointing because I feel like sometimes the a movie gives you like a bit of a false impression of how how science works and it, I don't feel like it they need to like I feel like science is can be pretty cool on its own if you just are honest about it um you know I always enjoy watching like the BBC documentaries with David Attenborough and stuff like that and those are always super impressive like just to see the natural world in its existence and I feel like right now is a there's more and more of those that are focusing on the organisms like that I like better. There's never, never those, those shows are never about the parasites. They're never about the little worms that live in the gunky mud and stuff like that. But I feel like there's more of those coming around now. And I feel like that's, that's kind of cool. Like, I don't expect there to ever be like a blockbuster movie about that stuff. But I mean, you know, right now we're like in the thrall of Last of Us and now like I was just on Twitter a couple of days ago and cordyceps was one of the trending things that people were looking for. And I was like, I never thought I would see the day that cordyceps fungus would be one of the things trending on Twitter. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, and those mind altering parasites are like, they're really awesome. They're not quite the same as cordyceps, but, um, but you know, there's lots of parasites that we, we have here in North America that do really cool stuff like that too, that um, changing the behavior of the host and all that kind of thing, which are really it's really cool. We've talked about the waders you left behind. We talked about getting dive bombed by birds. I want to know in the lab, what is your biggest oops moment? And also maybe your best lab moment. The oops that I always tell my own students is actually way back from when I first started working in the lab I did my PhD in. I had just started and I was actually my, my project that I did as an undergraduate summer student was just to do PCR, like endpoint PCR screening of, at the time, what was a macro array library. So like, that's a whole other thing about what those even are now. Um, 
but this macro array library I was screening and I would run uh, the the PCRs on like in a 96 well PCR machine and uh, each of them would be a separate tube though so we we didn't have like the 96 well plates for running in the machine we had individual tubes 96 individual tubes and then uh, I'd have to run them out on this huge agarose gel that held 120 different uh, samples. So it was like this like massive undertaking to do that stuff. And I made two oopses, but one of them is the story that's more appropriate to tell. And so so that first oops was it, uh, like the person who I was working under, he, he and the rest of the lab, they all went on a conference. And so I got like maybe a couple days of training and then they were like, okay, just like, just keep doing what you, this, just do this. And so I said, sure, okay. So I did that and... Then I got to the point where I had to load the gel and I loaded the loading buffer into each of the different tubes and then loaded it all. And then I went and took a picture and the picture was just like like hundreds of bands in every lane. Everything was like a total, looked like a total mess. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. And so I, I ran it again and did it all over again. And then finally I had to email the guy, the student that I, grad student I was paired with. And I was like, I ran out of the loading buffer. And he was like, how did you run out of the loading buffer? And it, the the TLDR of this is it turns out I was using like the ladder for the like the DNA gels as the loading buffer. So every one of my samples was just like all loading buffer ladder. And so there was like a, a 240 samples that just like we couldn't use out of the entire macro array because they we had used up the entire thing, like the, the phage that had been picked. I amplified it all, like ran the entire thing out. I was supposed to cut out each of those bands so that we could sequence them and stuff like that and all gone because I couldn't figure out what the band was. Like I was trying to trying to look and like see if I could figure out like which one it was in the ladder, but it didn't work. And so I use that as like an example for my own students now that like, you know, I learned my lesson. So I was like, I made a mistake, but I never did that again. So like, it's okay to make mistakes, but just don't do them multiple times in a row either inside or outside of the lab then what is your your best moment or your proudest moment in your career yeah i guess like inside the lab it's a that it's tough like if i think about it personally the answer would be very different than if i think about it at a career level because i think at the career level i i got given a piece of advice when i started my position back at the university in the school of public health and that was that like you have to stop thinking about your own contributions as your metric of success once you become a PI and that it's really your students' contributions are really what you're going to, that's your legacy. Now it's just facilitating others um, at being successful. And I think that, um, I think that's like maybe the part where I'm most proud uh, is really in all the success of this, that the students and trainees that I've had um, are getting, you know, when a student graduates or you see somebody like overcome some problem that like I I can only maybe partly help solve and then they they go through it and figure it out and and then you you know get a paper on that or they defend their thesis like all that stuff is really it's all it's all awesome um and it's like it's the main reason that I really enjoy the job is just like you get to interact with these like really enthusiastic um you know curious people who are asking questions that I think are cool but they're answering them in ways that I would have never come up with like i i can help guide some of that process but it's really exciting just to say like see how they decide to tackle problems a lot of our listeners or at least we're hoping a lot of our listeners are people who are maybe a little bit earlier in their career and they're actively at the bench and they're working everything else or even people who are just considering going the route of science and and research and everything what would be your biggest piece of advice for them 
or even if you could go back and give yourself like your younger self like a piece of advice when you were just starting like down this path yeah yeah i think that one of the things that i mentioned earlier maybe relates to this which is this idea that i have my research passion and that i think is what keeps me really excited about things and um and always engaged and i mean you know i i feel like an academic career it has like tons of really awesome advantages like the flexibility and all that stuff but you're also kind of like a your own driver of stress so you know like i decide i need to apply for this grant i decide i need to do this and and so you you kind of are always feeling like you have to do the next thing because if you don't then the whole thing falls apart but i think it was it was really when i realized that it was it was the skill set that i had learned sort of the methodological skill set that was really what i could use to ask the questions that i thought were exciting and move into spaces that i you know hadn't traditionally thought of myself as being part of like water microbiology and you know that's gotten us into this this uh, like conservation ecology stuff and invasive species work that i i that isn't my area of expertise from a from my background, but the methods that I know how to design digital PCR assays or qPCR assays or do metabarcoding, those allow me to think of creative ways to enter into those spaces and ask questions that I think are exciting and cool and learn about some of the stuff that I think is sort of my my foundation of what get, got me here in the first place. Um, and so I don't know if it's like really advice, but I think that it's like, don't don't be afraid to think of your, of your real skill set as being that methodological foundation and use that to explore interesting things don't I, I feel like sometimes people are afraid to apply for something that they like why well, did you know maybe in my example i did fish immunology so i can't do invasive species work and and digital pcr analysis but but you can you know how to do all those things it's just you just have to you know get yourself into that headspace to be able to think of a creative question to ask in that area and I think you said something that I really, really like too, which is just don't be afraid to ask the questions that interest you. Like it's it's okay to ask things that might seem a little, I don't know, out there or out of the box or something to somebody else that you're talking to, but chances are they might be able to give you an answer that you really like or you really need to know and you can apply it in one way or another. So I think that's, I think people can be a little um, like gun shy about that or like afraid of looking silly if they're going to ask something and they don't know. And so I think, I think it's, that's good advice. I would also say that one of the things that's been almost as rewarding as sort of the publishing of papers and, you know, like the sort of traditional academic milestones that happen as you go along is, has been engaging more with the public. People want to know more about science and they want to know how science works and how you ask questions in science and stuff. But often I feel like the, the language barrier is, is really sometimes challenging to to talk to people who have no idea what it is you're talking about and try to get it across to them. And like, as a good example, just this last weekend, I was, I was in the mountains here in Alberta at a thing for high school students talking to them about, um, PCR and trying to communicate to them. Like they, we walked them through extracting DNA. So we got like a group of 30 students to extract DNA from a water sample. And, and so it's like, you know, you got to put yourself in the headspace of somebody who maybe knows a bit about DNA, but maybe isn't that interested in that right now. So you, know, you want to get them excited, tell them about like why it's cool, but then have them be able to technically do it and understand you know, what each step was really all about. And, and doing that, I think, is really rewarding when you can talk to somebody who you know does not 
know why you would do digital PCR over qPCR or what even what digital PCR is and leave that room after 20 minutes and say like I think that they kind of get it that was Patrick Hannington professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of absolute genius stay curious and we'll see you next time did I say schistosome correctly <laughs> I have no idea see this is a YouTube video Shit, stop so. No, that's not right. <laughs>